If I'm not here to tell you, what if you were diagnosed with terminal cancer while raising a newborn baby? What if you thought your kid might have to grow up without you? What if you had to grow up without your mom? This is a series for my kid to make sure she is mothered by who I am, my experiences, and the lessons I've learned through my life and my work, whether I'm here with her in the flesh or not. Part biographical, part educational, this is a series on birth and life and death and finding freedom in diving headfirst into the ocean, rain or storm. Hi. Hi. How you doing? Well, um, I'm in the tub. Great. And I'm eating nachos and pepperoni. <laughs> and I thought of canceling our podcast, but I also okay. thought... Um, I'm in a place in my life where I'm just not really into delaying things and uh, something that I feel like I try to practice in my own life, but a quote that my sister-in-law actually often shares is never let perfectionism get in the way of good enough. And I have all of these things that I want to do and make for my kid and I don't want to just make none because each day is in the perfect day and if there's it's okay if there's background bathtub noise in our (laughs) podcast recording because at least it will be made so here we are what a great intro (laughs) (laughs) also if it's not a perfect time but you've made it as close to perfect as possible with nachos and pepperoni like I don't know what else we could ask for Right, exactly. What yeah. more? What more could we want out of yeah. life? <laughs> um, so I made us a little outline that I didn't send to you. So you're just gonna have to roll with me. <laughs> it's okay. I'm good at I'm I'm good at being spontaneous, anyways. Wonderful. Um, I thought that maybe because it was just our second podcast episode, that perhaps we should reintroduce ourselves and just a bit, a little bit of a reminder about what the podcast is about and for. Sure. Um, well, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, I can introduce myself. So, um, my name is Talia Kleinplatz, and I am a friend of Jessica's and a student of Jessica's, and, um, I am a birth worker and a social worker and a photographer and, now a podcast host. <laughs> um, Don't forget cocktail maker. Cocktail maker, blogger. Um, so yeah, lots of lots of different hats and probably most pertinent to this podcast is, I guess, friend of Jessica's and birth worker. Yeah. And also my doula, which I, always, I was thinking last time <laughs> when I introduced you, like a pretty key piece is that you were basically the only person I've let within three feet of me when I was having my baby. <laughs> and I think that's a pretty key part of our relationship. Is it pretty... my husband and my dog. <laughs> yes. Pretty, pretty important part of the relationship too. And I was thinking like, what is my role here? I was like, maybe I'm the podcast doula. Maybe, yes. that's, maybe yes. that's my role here. So You're the podcast doula. Definitely. Yeah. So that's me. Yeah. Um, My name is Jessica Austin. I'm also have been working in birth for over a decade and I'm currently on a version of a leave. I'm no longer attending births myself because I'm uh, 
um, have a one-year-old child and also metastatic breast cancer, which I was diagnosed with in very early pregnancy of having breast cancer, had lots of treatment during pregnancy, and so quit attending births and took a leave from work much earlier in pregnancy than I had originally intended to. Um, since giving birth to cancer has spread, which is very um, negative in terms of prognosis and life expectancy. And the main motivation for this podcast is I really, on the one hand, I'm very committed to doing everything that I can to stay alive and healthy and happy health, like physically and emotionally healthy for my child for as long as possible. And, um, you know, being in a place of really being aware that time is limited and I want my kid to know who she is and where she came from. And, you know, the reality is I think something that I am aware of is that often I think children who have a parent that died early at some point in their lives feel a bit abandoned. Mm -hmm. um, and I really, and part of that might be just normal and part of a process that she might have to go through. And, you know, if I can create as much of myself that I can leave behind for her as possible, that she can choose to listen to and access as much as she needs or wants for her whole life, I think I feel like, or my hope is that it'll contribute to any kind of lack of identity of not knowing where she came from and be, help heal some of that, that abandonment that, that, you know, growing people sometimes feel when they, when they have something taken away from them at a really young age. Yeah, absolutely. And just so everyone else who might one day listen to this know that like this is one piece of that work that you're undertaking in terms of kind of leaving behind as much of yourself for your kid. Um, yes. And that that is kind of uh, a broad spectrum of work that you're undertaking right now. Yeah. Um, I think it's also just important to say that this is our second episode. Um, and for folks that want to go back and listen to the first episode, um, It'll likely inform our discussion here and kind of build upon it. Um, the first episode, um, we really talked about um, Jess's own birth, um, not with Kadra, but um, the birth of herself from her mom <laughs> and in her family and kind of um, generational knowledge about birth and generational stories about birth um, and how that kind of informed your own experiences and ideas and work in birth. Um, and we had a bit of a discussion afterwards and decided, um, that there's definitely more that we're going to come back to, um, around all of those stories. And that I think it kind of, um, sparked a lot of other things that you want to include in these conversations at some point. Um, mm -hmm. but that the most logical place that we were going to go after talking about birth was to use the second episode to talk about death. Um, yeah. So I prepared a, a little bit, although it always, I know we always kind of meander in our discussion. So I'm sure that this won't be any different. Um, but uh, kind of what you had said is you wanted to talk about how you're thinking about death, how you're preparing for it. Um, 
and maybe for context, you can share as much or as little as you want about your current diagnosis and prognosis. I know you kind of touched on it. I don't know if you wanted to add more or if you feel like. Yeah. So um, my, the type of breast cancer I have, um, you know, sometimes people get, it's breast cancer is becoming a little bit more well-known in our society. And there's lots of ad campaigns and fundraising campaigns and public health awareness campaigns around it. So people feel like they know a bit about it. Um, part of that assumed knowledge is I think a lot of people know that um, outcomes recently have been much better for people who are diagnosed with breast cancer, especially when they're diagnosed fairly early on, um, and that the chances of getting treatment that works and leads to a longer life um, are quite good for people with breast cancer in general. And there's different types of breast cancer. And the type of breast cancer I have is called triple negative breast cancer, meaning um, it's not impacted by hormones, mm -hmm. which some types of breast cancer are. And that means it's harder to treat. And so right from the beginning of like original diagnosis already, the prognosis is much more poor than other types of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. um, once any cancer spreads, that's when it becomes uh, like the outlook starts to look more dire. If they, if you can kind of get the cancer out before it's spread anywhere else in your body, there's more um, kind of room or possibility or potential of the, the kind of cancer cells not having strayed too far and trying to establish themselves in different places. But once it has done that, it kind of becomes a game of how do we minimize symptoms, extend the person's life for as long as possible, and it's no longer like, how do we put them into remission from cancer? And you hear like, you can hear stories about radical remission of people having like, you know, amazing, incredible, completely unexpected stories of healing and recovery um, that kind of go against all odds. And those stories exist for even people like me. And you know, what I have on my side is that I'm young and I'm fit and I'm healthy and I'm strong and I have a lot to live for. Um, so I see no reason why I shouldn't have a chance of being in the, the group of people that are the far outliers that live, live longer than expected. And the reality is that the kind of statistical likelihood of somebody being alive in five years from being diagnosed is like five or 10% or something from being diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. Um, the average life expectancy, if you Google it for people who have metastatic triple negative life expectancy, uh, triple negative breast cancer is around a year. Um, so I'm approaching that year mark of getting not, not quite at a year of getting diagnosed with metastasis and I'm still healthy and strong and feeling generally good on the day to day and my cancer keeps spreading. So, so far it is in my breast. When it first spread, it was to my bones. Um, most recently, just in the last week, it was discovered that it has spread to some spots in my brain. Um, and what I have, the thing I have going for me is that I'm not having symptoms of that so far, and it's not in any vital organs otherwise, like it's not in my lungs or my liver so far, and that is all bodes well. So I've got some things on my side and some things very much not. 
Absolutely. And I mean, I think one of the things that um, I'm struck by anytime, because it's been a couple times that you've gotten this news of the cancer having spread. And every time you do, you just kind of meet it. You meet this news in this way that um, surprises me. Like, I don't, I don't have other <laughs> words to, to describe it other than just the strength that you bring to it anytime that news comes. And understandably, for some people, that can be quite um, debilitating. Like, just the news of it can be quite debilitating. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you have coped and kind of met that news each time and kept going. Well, Nilda, I think it's a long answer and it's been, there's been different versions of hard. Mm -hmm. I think the hardest was when I first got diagnosed, when I had just found out I was pregnant. Hardly anybody knew I was pregnant. Like my partner knew, you knew, um, my mentor knew. We hadn't even told our parents yet. Like we hadn't announced it. Very few people knew I was pregnant and I was diagnosed with breast cancer and that was the most that original diagnosis was the most shocking and crushing and took a lot of like intentional allowing myself to grieve and allowing myself to cry and allowing myself to feel and like keeping myself moving forward Mm -hmm. and at that time it's kind of like, okay, so what are the things, like, what are the things that keep me moving forward? And for me, which we kind of alluded to last time was like, I'm, I am a nature person. I feel healthier in the wild. I love to swim. I need to be in the water. I need to be in the mountains. And those things always bring me back into my body and make me realize that I am part of a whole universe that is so much bigger than me as an individual and I find it humbling and empowering and it just gives me so much strength so anytime I felt like I was kind of falling into the pit of despair I would get somebody to take me to some kind of river or the ocean or the lake and just jump into the cold water for a just cold reset and for me that's one of like the biggest things I don't know what it is I think done a lot of traveling in my life which we'll probably talk about in future episodes but I remember at one point being in Southeast Asia swimming in the ocean and looking out at this like huge horizon of the expansive ocean and having this realization of like I'm touching the entire planet right Hmm. now like I'm in the water and this water is spreading across the entire globe And me being in it is like me touching the whole planet at once. (laughs) And it was just, it's this like peace feeling washed over me of like, um, you know, we can get all caught up in our like individualism and our self-importance and our little individual stresses and anxieties and worries or insecurities. And all of those are real and matter. And you know, we're not alone and we're not just like, like we're a part of this whole, I was going to say orgasm, (laughs) what I mean to say is organism, (laughs) part of this whole organism, which is like the whole planet, which is part of the whole universe. And 
anytime that I have like felt overwhelmed in my life, there's just something about jumping into the water and letting the cold shock of that coldness wash over me from head to toe just gives me this kind of reset, grounding, connected reality check almost. So I did a lot of that. Um, I did a lot of reciting a favorite poem of mine, which interestingly, I'd read an excerpt of the poem in a book not long before I got diagnosed and it became like my, what I thought was my favorite poem, even though I only knew a part of it. And the quote was, um, I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water. Um, for a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. And I would say that to myself over and over again, like in the tub when I was crying, I would let myself cry. And then I would just repeat that over and over and over in my head. And then I looked up the full poem and the full poem is actually about a parent worrying about their child. Yeah. The beginning of the poem is, um, I, uh, I'm not in my best state of mind today, but basically the beginning of the poem says something about when I wake in the night at the least sound of what my life and what my children's lives may be, I go to nature, basically, is the summary. Um, and it's actually making me cry just thinking about it because it became my favorite poem long before I was before I was pregnant, before I knew I needed this poem, I was using it through my diagnosis before I actually knew it had anything to do with parenting a child. Wow. And so I would say it, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I, I couldn't sleep or I was anxious or I was kind of feeling, you know, having a lot of grief and I would get up quietly and run myself a bath and light a candle and sit in the tub and just say that poem to myself over and over again. And when I went to the water, because, you know, as you know, I'm often jumping into very cold water and often at very cold times of year. And even though I know it 100% of the time makes me feel better when it's done, I don't always necessarily feel brave <laughs> enough to do it. And I'll often say, like, say that poem to myself before I do it. And like the line that I repeat to myself is, I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with the forethought of grief that do not tax my life with the forethought of grief. It's like, what is happening right now? What is good for me right now? And that's not to mean, that's not to say like, live with no reverence for the planning for the future or the consequences of your actions. But it's, you know, like, don't let the fear paralyze you. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, I wonder if you can talk a little bit, because I'm also struck by the memory of like the ritual that you built into your life. Um, especially early on. And I know we've had lots of talks about rituals and not doing ritual for ritual's sake. But I also remember that early on um, in your diagnosis when you started treatment that you had kind of built in this ritual of going to the water before each chemo treatment. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about that at all. Well, how that started actually is them screwing up my <laughs> So I've had um, lots of really good care through my diagnosis. And I've also been dealing with a lot of the problems of like, you know, what it means to be part of a system and like a very organized 
and large institution that is trying to survive, tries to make itself really efficient, and it becomes very big. Um, they often start to have like a lot of division of labor for the efficiency's sake. And in a lot of ways, that's really smart. In a lot of ways, it leaves a lot of room for breakdown. And I've been dealing with a lot of that in various ways that I'm sure we'll come <laughs> back to um, since the beginning of my diagnosis. But one of the first ones was for my first chemotherapy appointment, they had scheduled me uh, to come in. And because it was my first appointment, they said I'd need to come in early, uh, a couple hours before to go to a teaching about chemotherapy and the side effects and living while you're on chemotherapy. And that would take about an hour. And then an hour after that would be my chemotherapy appointment. And this, I was given specific times, um, multiple times. Yeah. And, you know, it was like this whole thing about coming early and it was going to be a long day. You know, there's a lot of specific conversations about this. And it was a lot for me to decide to do chemotherapy when I was pregnant because I was pregnant and I was obviously concerned about, you know, is it safe to do chemotherapy while I'm pregnant? And, you know, we can come back to that decision-making process in another podcast, but it was a very big decision to make to decide like, yes, I believe that this is reasonably safe at this time. Um, and I'm going to do it because I think the risk of me dying unnecessarily for my kid is higher than any risk that seems to exist for giving this specific type of chemotherapy at this specific time. But even so, it's a big thing to sign up for going through chemotherapy while you're pregnant. And so I'd rallied my team and my partner took the day off work and my midwife took the day off of her work and came to the city because she doesn't live in town. And we went to the appointment together and went to this hour long teaching session. Um, and then we went to upstairs for my next appointment and they said, oh no, you're not booked for today. You're booked oh for tomorrow. <laughs> and I was like, nope. Like I've been told very specifically multiple times, like this is the appointment I'm assuming. Oh no, you must've just misunderstood, which is not like I understand is possible in the realm of human error and I'm capable of it too. But it, like all three of us had heard this information multiple times. Like it was definitely not an error on our end. Yeah. And I was livid. Like I, you know, this is like one year and eight yeah. months ago now or something. So I don't remember the exact specifics, but I was furious. Um, I was like, this isn't a nail salon. Like it doesn't matter. Like it matters if you bump my appointment. Like it's like, this is a big deal. Like you guys are, this is not bode well for me feeling safe in your care. If you can't even figure out when I'm supposed to be getting my cable appointment. Anyways, my husband and my midwife advocated really hard for me to continue to get the treatment on that day because I was like, you know, I need these people here yeah. with me. And, but they couldn't get me in right away. So we had a couple hours to kill before they uh, were able to kind of renegotiate where my appointment was. And so we decided it was the summer. So we decided to drive to um, Lynn Creek in North Vancouver, where we sometimes would take Piper, our dog. And I would often go swimming. So we went there together. Andrea and I jumped in the water together and swam and went for a walk and fantasized about how nice it would be if they would just give her the IV of chemo and she could get <laughs> the chemo by the river. Um, and then we went to my appointment and I sat in that chair and held this placenta necklace that I wore and just focused on my placenta being 
strong and protective and feeding my baby and protecting her from any toxins that were in my body and just trusting my trusting the placenta and really visualizing some advice I got early on from a, a past colleague whose partner had been through breast cancer had said to me, I kept calling the chemo poison. And she said, you know, the one thing I'll suggest to you is really, you're going to do it. You've decided to do it. So now when you're getting the chemotherapy, you have to, I would suggest that you just try to picture it as healing, a healing liquid that is in your body to heal you. And so that's what I did. I just really focused on that every single appointment. And because that, you know, that it just really changed the tone of the day. Like it started off like this, like stressful determination, apprehension, apprehension. Um, then it became stressful when we thought that it was all going to, I was going to have to go through this whole apprehensiveness again the next day. And then we just like rallied and we went to the river and we swam and we ate lunch and it changed, it changed the yeah. tone for the day. So we made it, we started making it a ritual. And then every time afterwards, there was a swim pre-chemo. <laughs> every time afterwards all the way till november there was a swim oh, pre-chemo the swims got very cold <laughs> <laughs> the swims got colder and colder and colder yeah. so i i can sense that we have already meandered from our topic and we will i know that we will come back to a lot of other episodes where we talk more about those early days and kind of your decision making and coping and all of that but I also know that today you mm-hmm. wanted to talk a little bit about how how you're thinking and preparing, um, how you're thinking about death, how you're preparing for death. So maybe we can just start there. Yeah, I think there's so much to say yeah. about that. I think, you know, a place that I've gotten to when I think about death I mean, it seems funny to say, and it's hard to talk about because I think sometimes people find when people talk about like preparing for death or finding comfort, being comfortable with death, they think you're giving up on life. And for me, it's the exact opposite of that. It's kind of like this awareness of like, we are Mm -hmm. all going to die. I am have it like right glaring me in the face that death is like a huge possibility in the near horizon for me. And it's normal. Death is normal. We're all going to die. Any person might get hit by a car tomorrow. At some point, people die. None of us live forever. You know, like trees eventually die and bees eventually die and dogs eventually die and our grandparents eventually die and humans eventually die. Um, And... I think part of my work in birth and kind of un- disentangling a culture that is also terrified of birth and has all of these conceptions and fears and terrors and stigma and urban legends around birth, you know, I've undone all of those. And I've really learned to see birth as this like beautiful, natural, both human and somewhat sacred experience. And because of doing the work through that with birth, I think it was easier for me to do it with death. Um, I actually started thinking about death in a more serious way a few years before I was diagnosed. Um, 
with a couple clients having stillbirths, like babies that had died like around 28 weeks or 24 weeks of pregnancy and um, not long before my diagnosis, like in the, I, I lose track of time these days, but in the year or two before my diagnosis, a very good friend of mine gave birth to a stillborn baby like around 28 or 29 weeks. Sorry to, <laughs> sorry to Audrey if I'm getting your, your birthday weeks wrong there, but somewhere around there. Um, and those experiences kind of were started to give me this glimpse of like, oh, death mm -hmm. is the same as birth. And there's different ways to approach it, just like there's different ways to approach birth. And part of our discomfort with it is the fact that we've taken it out of the hands of the community, just like we've done with birth. And I've been noticing that in the last few years and kind of pondering it and thinking about it. And even to the point of doing some research into death midwifery and death doulas and what those were and what those look like, um, more out of just curiosity as opposed to in terms of like a life career change. And so I'd already kind of started pondering how to look at death before I got diagnosed and confronted with my own mortality. Absolutely. I remember, I think it was actually very, very early on when I had met you. Um, I had, I had ended up attending my first birth and my first death in the same year and remember being very struck by the same thing of like, whoa, the things that, the things that you need to be present at a birth and support people through birth are so similar to what you need to support somebody through death. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I was struck by that early on in kind of our relationship that your teachings were already kind of showing that, right? Whether you intended it to or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like kind of accidentally, yeah. right? And so when I think about, you know, now that I know death, like death to me isn't just a concept now, like death is a like, oh, like this is something that I need to confront and prepare for. And to me, like, it's very important for, I, I actually think the reason that I feel less afraid is because I'm looking at it. And I'm not just like shoving it to the back and pretending it's not going to happen. And although I have confidence in myself and this, I'm very open to the possibility of living for longer than average people in my scenario. I also think it's the being like, the other thing to remember is that I have mm -hmm. a one year old child. And to be honest, the only thing that I'm afraid of about my death is the impact it's going to have on her and how she will be cared for afterwards. And if it wasn't for that, I think I would actually feel, well, it's, it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, I'm tempted to say, if it wasn't for that, I would be completely at peace mm -hmm. with the idea of my death because I've had a really full life. I've done a lot of really amazing things. Like I can't, I've had like, I found what I would describe as my calling and I know I've affected positive change through my work and I've had like adventures and opportunities and done really cool things. And I can't actually think of anything in my life that I think like, Oh, I really wish I would have done that. Mm -hmm. Like I've done all the things. 
And so in a way, I think like if I didn't, if I wasn't worried about what would, you know, about the impact that my death would have on my daughter, I would like, that's my only fear. Like that's my only yep. fear. And if I hadn't, like the only thing I haven't, the only thing I haven't done is finish mothering her. Um, and if I hadn't had her, the thing that I would be really grieving and that would probably be the thing that was making me really struggle and be like, I can actually imagine my feeling would be like, I never got to give birth. I never got to breastfeed. I never got to have a baby. And that would be the thing that would, was probably be keeping me from, yeah from finding peace. And then the third piece of that is I actually think having her, not that it is in any way her job to be my savior or my healer or my reason to live because that is not her responsibility. She's also a very good yes. motivator. Absolutely. And I know that you've talked about that, like when hard news has come um, since she's been here. Um, and you can edit this out if you don't want this shared, but I remember us having a conversation very recently where I had asked you how you were doing and you said, I think your exact words were, it's hard to be anything but positive and happy when I'm hanging out with her, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. And so it, it is understandable. Yes, yeah, she's not, she's not, it's not her job and a consequence of her being around is also that it comes with those feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like she's just, I was describing it to someone else too, is like the, like the dedication I have to her, like this mammalian dedication I have to her is almost, it's like, it's like this palpable fierce, like, you know, there's like the stereotypical like image of the mama bear and baby bear and it's it's almost become like a trendy way to talk about about that kind of yeah parent child bond it's actually not it's the perfect symbol because like when i think of like what is my feeling towards her it's like this ferocious protectiveness that can only be described as like a mother bear like killing off the giant male grizzly bear because yeah. she's protecting her cub. And like that visual is like, that is how I feel about her. And like every, like every cell in my body is like, how mm. do I protect my child? And that's a pretty good way yeah. to keep putting one foot in front Absolutely. of the other. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I know, you know, in May of last year, I think is around the time or a little bit before May of last year, it was around the time when you found out about the first, um, metastases and you shared a post on your blog shortly after that news came. Um, and I often come back, uh, to reading it, uh, where you write about your prognosis and your thoughts on death and, um, one of the quotes that always strikes me that you had written was, I won't. In, in particular to death, I won't wait for it or expect it or sign myself up for it before I need to. And I won't be terrified of it either. I will simply prepare for it in sacredness and work with it when it comes, whatever that looks like. 
And I, I mean, I still get emotional when I read those words and I've read it many, many times. Um, how have you been able to strike a balance within yourself between both the preparation for death um, while also being so very present every day and very much, you know, very much living every day. Like just there's like vitality oozing out of you at the same time as this is going on. Yeah. You know, someone sent me a quote, I think after reading that article that said, I just want to share this with you because it reminds me of you. It is a quote from a Francis Weller book. Um, I think it's an African proverb that says something like, when death comes for you, make sure it finds you alive. And before reading that quote, like, that's how I feel. Like, I just, it's almost like my will to live and be present is that much stronger because I know time is precious and it feels like a waste to just be like, to just like curl up in a ball yeah. of despair and wait for it. Um, I feel like, and that's not to say like, don't let myself feel the feelings. And sometimes I cry and sometimes I'm angry and I've got, you know, I've got, I let myself feel all those things too. And like, I really love being alive and I'm really grateful to get to be here. And I'm really grateful for every minute that I get to mother my child and spend time with her and take her to the forest with me and take her to the river with me and take her to the ocean with me and clean up the <laughs> books that she throws on the ground and the, <laughs> the dog dish full of water that she pours all over the place. And it's like, it honestly makes me a better parent because when those things happen, like my honest reaction is like, I'm so glad yeah. I get to be here for this. And I really think like when you say like, how do you find that balance? I think I find it because I'm not avoiding death. I think because I'm not, because I'm also able to think about how do I want to die and who do I want to have with me when I die? And um, what do I need to do to make sure that can happen? And what do I want? Oops, technical glitch. Yeah, and so I think taking that opportunity and really taking the time to make those plans about how I can set myself up for my best chance of those things happening takes, I think a lot of the fear comes from the fear of the unknown and the fear of having no control and the fear of, um, you know, what's going to happen to your family when you're gone. But I can see that there are, well, there are some things that are out of my control. There are definite some active steps that I can take to, set myself and my kid up for my best chance of having what I want to have happen. Mm -hmm. um, and when people interpret that as like giving up hope, what I say to them is we all should be doing this. Yes. Like, you know, life is not certain and life is not guaranteed and we all really should be living our lives. I'm going to hate using the word should, but if we were kind of grew up in a culture where we weren't so afraid, like death wasn't so hidden from us and we could spend our lives thinking about, you know, how would we want to die and who would we want to be with us and what would we want to do before we died? I think it could really help us guide how we live our lives and how we spend our days and the things that we 
allow to become a big deal in our lives and the things that we think like, you know what, that's just not worth my energy. And like, it's very in my face. So I have the, the, like, I hate saying it's like a luxury to have the diagnosis, but I do think a lesson of it is it lets me not be in that kind of denial that traps you a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think it like it, Whereas if I was avoiding planning and preparing for death, it would just be this like unspoken anxiety and fear in the back of my mind while I'm trying to just live my life. And because I'm looking at it, I don't have to be so afraid. And it also allows me to enjoy my life. Like I said, I was talking to a friend the other day who was trying to make a big life decision. And she said she was also really impacted by that blog post where I talked about, you know, I quoted like a country music song because I'm from Alberta where I talked about how I hope someday you get the chance to live like you were dying. And she was like, you know, I'm really thinking about that and thinking like if I, you know, if I was going to die tomorrow, like what, how would I be wanting to spend my time right now? Mm -hmm. And I said, yep, that's important. And you also need to think about who do you want to have be with you when you die? Like, because those are the people to spend time with. And those are the people to keep close to you. And those are the people to value. Like it's, it's like, what experiences do you want to have? And what, what humans do you want to have? And yeah. how do you live your life in a way that holds and allows room for both of those? Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about what your own preparation has looked like? Well, I would totally love to, but as, um, you know, this kind of like, because we're not like a big, uh, we're, we're not, we're, we're not, we're not pros here. So we're kind of flying on the seat of our pants while I'm like, let's just get this done as much as possible. <laughs> um, on that note, my friends who I haven't seen for a very long time have just arrived oh. <laughs> <laughs> into town. Um, so I think we better finish there and we can do a, a preparation episode for our, for a future one. Perfect. I we're always leaving people on the edge of wanting more so we'll always end on a question that's right we're and over then, into being we're cliffhangers lately we're total <laughs> we're cliffhangers into, we're, we're accidental cliff we're an accidental cliffhanger theme we're the stay tuned folks that's right <laughs> okay thanks Del. all right I'll talk to you later and on that note we said we'd finish every lesson with a message to Kedra or lesson for her that I wanted to leave and I think this episode probably had lots of accidental lessons in it, but I think the one I'll finish on is don't let perfect get in the way of good enough. Make time here for your friends and make the things today that you want to leave behind. I'm Jessica and talking with me today was Talia Kleinplatz of Common Heart Photography. You can find me on Instagram at Jessica Austin Childbirth, where I provide lots of free education on birth and related insights, and where you can learn about my doula training and prenatal classes. If you benefit from the education I provide and wish to make a contribution to my projects for my daughter, you can find my fundraising campaign in the link in my Instagram bio. No pressure though, it's just there because folks ask for it. I'll finish with my favorite poem, The Peace of Wild Things by Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. 
for a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. So rest in the grace of the world, people, and be free. See you next time. Thank you.